This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. A full-time minimum wage job in America will not keep a mama and a baby out of poverty. That is wrong, and that is why I am in this fight. Medicare for all. We should be talking about, you know, how it, Bernie's been honest. It's going to cost, you know, it's going to raise tax in the middle class. Well, you got to find 30 to $40 trillion somewhere. Our Medicare for all plan, you know, look, I, I just realized that what was being offered was not enough. And it wasn't, and, I'm, and I've been listening to people. I mean, I can't be more direct and, and just candid with you. I've been listening. Oh, Caitlin, this is Anthony. Oh, hey, Anthony. Great. After the last presidential debate and the Democratic nomination, the polls did move. We went from seeing Joe Biden with a clear lead to more of a tier of candidates. Biden still top with first choice support, but clearly in competition with Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders. So what happens now as we head into round two or rounds three and four, given that they're split up? across the stage. Well, I am here in New York. This is Anthony Salvanto, uh, CBS News with Where Did You Get This Number? And my colleague, Caitlin Huey-Burns, is at the debate. So, Caitlin, what's going on there in, in Detroit? Hey, Anthony, great to be with you. Tonight, you're going to have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren as kind of the marquee matchup. And they're representing this more liberal part of the Democratic Party that supports things like Medicare for all and kind of big restructuring of traditional politics and policy. And then also on the stage, you're going to have others who are trying to fight for their lives. People like Beto O'Rourke, you have a newcomer like Steve Bullock, the governor from Montana. Everybody wants to advance after this debate. I think tonight will give us a really interesting view about how Bernie Sanders views his own campaign. He does not usually go after rivals personally. He goes after them on policy. We've seen him do that with Joe Biden. Tonight with Elizabeth Warren, it will be very interesting because they share a lot of similar views when it comes to policy. But Bernie Sanders has been slipping in the polls a bit. Elizabeth Warren has been rising. Does he feel the need to go after her, to draw contrast with her, to kind of reestablish himself as the leader on a lot of these ideas? And then for Elizabeth Warren, does she kind of maintain what she has been doing throughout this entire campaign? Her view is kind of slow and steady, unveiling lots of policy prescriptions that she believes speak to the concerns felt among the Democratic base. 
You know, we've seen now uh, some criticism out there of what happened in the last Democratic debate, uh, notably, most recently in a piece uh, on Medium, I believe, from uh, former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel and former White House Chief of Staff. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, Democrats don't make the second debate like the one in Miami, in which it seems in his view they came across as going too far to the left. He said, don't worry about giving, you know, who's going to get health care to, let's say, undocumented immigrants. Worry more about the cost for rank and file people, uh, voters on the ground who can't pay their medical bills or can't pay the, their prescription co-pays. And I was caught by that because it, it echoed for me some of what I've seen in the polling, which is that, and healthcare in particular, people feeling like it was cost rather than coverage. But the overall point, this idea that the Democrats in debating, in trying to go after what I think Emmanuel called the, the Twitter vote, the folks who are online, who are active, who are more ideological than the rest of the, uh, the electorate, do they risk then losing the middle uh, out of this debate? And how has criticism like that been received both by the Democrats and the campaigns or has it been ignored? You know, it's really interesting because I think Michigan really represents the kind of two schools of thought that are going on in the Democratic Party. So you think about what Rahm Emanuel said in that op-ed. I had the opportunity to interview Gretchen Whitmer, who is the Democratic governor of Michigan. She won in 2018, two years after Trump won the state, narrowly, but still, you know, won it and broke the Republicans' losing streak here. And she flipped nine counties that President Trump won. And she told me that the way she did it was by talking about purely kitchen table issues. She ran campaign ads saying, fix the damn roads. She talked a lot about infrastructure. She talked a lot about kind of people's personal economy and wages. And she didn't focus on Washington, D.C. She didn't focus on kind of the national narrative. And she believes that that's a roadmap for Democrats who want to compete here. But you also have Democrats saying, well, look, in a state like Michigan, we lost by 11, 000, fewer than 11,000 votes. If we had just turned up our base in areas like Detroit, in areas um, that are more urban, more diverse, we could have won this state. And so the question, I think, for a lot of Democrats is, do we try to reclaim Trump voters or independents who switched to Trump last time around, or do we just focus on really ramping up our base and getting our numbers up so that we can be competitive? And you're going to see that, I think, over the course of the next two nights. And you also have an interesting kind of conversation going on in the Democratic primary about the Obama legacy. So you have people like Joe Biden who are campaigning as, let's just continue what we were doing in the Obama administration, things we're working out well for us politically. Uh, they believe that they got some key achievements done, namely Obamacare. Then you have others like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren essentially saying, you know, that didn't go far enough. It's not just enough to continue the Obama administration. We have to have some real structural changes in this economy, in uh, our politics. I think it also does split candidates. You know, even when we've asked, you know, do you think that the Democrats should 
argue a message that returns to the Obama era, or do you think it should argue for something even more progressive? And the party itself splits, and the ones who say return to the Obama era are, perhaps unsurprisingly, much more for Joe Biden, whereas you see a much tighter cluster of candidates among those who say, you know, go more progressive, and that's Biden, but it's also Warren and Sanders and Harris. And, you know, one of the things that's also, as we talk about which of the candidates is sort of competing against which others, and specifically who is going to try to pull voters from the other one, one thing that struck me is, there are there are 60 percent of Bernie Sanders voters who are considering voting for Elizabeth Warren. There are 44 percent of Warren's voters who are considering voting for Bernie Sanders. So in some respects, it seems like Warren could pull more from Sanders. Is that a strategy for her? Has she talked about it? Has the campaign talked about that? You know, it's really interesting because when Bernie Sanders got into this race. Everybody was wondering, can he keep his coalition intact and can he build upon it? And, you know, he's finding that in a very crowded primary, he's not just the sole alternative to the front runner, that there are a lot of other options. And Elizabeth Warren's approach has been, you know, she was first out of the gate, the first to launch, the first top-tier candidate, really, to launch her campaign. She announced on New Year's Eve and uh, her approach has been to really expand on the notion that a lot of what Bernie Sanders was talking about is now mainstream in the party in 2019, 2020. And so she's been able to kind of build up this coalition. But I will say, you know, what's interesting about our CBS News polling, too, is that when you all asked voters, you know, are you more concerned about the policy differences or, or the differences within the primary, or are you more concerned about, you know, a candidate who can defeat Trump? And that reflects a lot of what I've been finding on the ground talking to voters is that they appreciate some of the differences. You do have some of these you know, more active members of the Democratic base who are really concerned about specific policies and approach. But overall, they just want a candidate who can defeat Donald Trump. Now, they're figuring out who that will be. And a lot of times they don't exactly know, you know, what makes an electable candidate. But I think that there is a, more of a willingness this time around to eventually coalesce around the nominee, whoever emerges from this primary. But it'll be a particular challenge, I think, for those who are supporting Bernie Sanders. He does have a loyal coalition, and uh, there is still some, you know, raw feelings within the Democratic Party about how 2016 went, really on both sides. We uh, asked which of the candidates was most passionate, and Warren came out high on that. She was also rated high for being specific, being prepared. Has that changed, as you talk to the campaigns, has that changed the dynamic in the sense that now they all feel like this? there's this pressure to put out plans, everybody's got to have a plan because that's been, you know, that's that's helped Warren so well? You know, I do think that we saw candidates really focused on policy rollouts because they saw how successful Elizabeth Warren was with that. But, you know, out of all these candidates, I think Elizabeth Warren has been most effective in making her theory of the case from the very beginning. When she launched her campaign, she launched it really on economic issues that she has been talking about for her entire career. 
And so it's one thing to just roll out policies. It's another to say, look, I've been working on these issues for years and years and years. I've felt the impacts of these policies personally. You know, she talks a lot about how she grew up. And I think it's difficult to just replicate that by coming out with policy proposals, especially since voters are looking at at policy as a reflection of what the candidate believes and kind of how authentic they are. So a lot of voters that I talk to that come out to see Elizabeth Warren, even if they're not sure they're going to support her, you know, say that they just appreciate that she's been kind of talking about the same things for a really long time, that she believes in the things that she is saying. And so the challenge, I think, for these other candidates is to really figure out, you know, what is their pitch to voters? Why are they running? And I think, um, you know, Warren just was able to make that case from the very beginning and really focused on building out the infrastructure in these early states to really get that going. Let's uh, skip ahead now to the second night where we'll see from the top tier, we'll see Biden, we'll see Harris. When folks replay that first debate, they thought maybe Biden didn't come across. And I'm saying what the people in the polling basically said, that he didn't come across as somebody they felt would fight as much for people like them. He didn't rate as highly when we asked those qualities like being passionate or even having been prepared And it seems from your reporting and from others that his campaign knows that was something of a deficit. Is there anything telling you that they're specifically going to try to try and make that up? Yeah, they were caught off guard by Kamala Harris going after him on the busing issue, especially since, you know, Biden campaigned for most of these candidates at some point in their career. Uh, uh, Hold on. Reference. Reminder. Alert. Caitlin, we're getting the reference reminder alert. It's Sam again. And Jason again. Hang on there, Jason. Caitlin's talking about busing here. What's what's that about? Well, Sam, I'm glad you asked. It actually takes us back to the last debate when Kamala Harris attacked Joe Biden's position from the 70s to oppose federally enforced busing to integrate public schools. Take a listen. There was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools, and she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. If we want to have this campaign litigated on who supports civil rights and whether I did or not, I'm happy to do that. I was a public defender. I didn't become a prosecutor. Do you agree today that you were wrong to oppose busing in America? Then, no, Do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. That's what I oppose. Well, I did not oppose. Well, there was a failure of, of states. To That's it for us. Go. Now back to the show. Okay, thanks, guys. So, Caitlin, before that, you were saying that Biden reportedly was caught off guard during that exchange, and then we saw Harris rise in the polls afterwards. But he is, you know, still considered the front runner. He goes into these debates with a target on his back. And the difference, I think, coming from the campaign, at least from um, our conversations with them and with the candidate himself, is that he's now prepared to not only defend his record, but to go after his rivals if necessary. He told us that he may have been a little too polite in the last debate. 
And I think we'll see him, you know, really respond more actively or proactively to his record when candidates go after him. We know that Cory Booker, who has been, you know, further down in the polls trying to uh, advance in this primary, has kind of struggled to do so. He's going to really target Joe Biden on the issue of criminal justice. And that's going to be an important issue here in Detroit, just more broadly. But also, um, you know, a way for Cory Booker to kind of take some shots at the front runner. They also saw, you know, what worked for Kamala Harris in the last debate, and they're trying to kind of replicate that momentum that she got. Now, you know, that could have just been a bounce that she got, um, that she received. We saw her rise in the polls, but we'll wait to see kind of does fundraising keep up with that? Uh, do her poll numbers stay there, or was that just a, a, a debate bump? But a lot of candidates and campaigns that I've talked to kind of took that as a roadmap of, of kind of how to approach these debates. Yeah, because people are going to first need to be aware of a candidate, then consider a candidate, and then make them their first choice support. So, we know that more people say they're going to watch than actually watch, and we know that that could taper off as we go through the summer and the fall. So you sort of get these diminishing opportunities as they go to stay in the conversation, which which kind of leads to the – you mentioned some of the other candidates that we should touch on, you know, the Buttigieg, Booker, O'Rourke, Castro, Klobuchar. I could, I could, I could name more. From what you're hearing – is their fundraising dependent on how they do right now, or are they sitting on enough cash that they can ride things through the uh, through the winter? Absolutely. This is going to be a real test for those campaigns that are polling, you know, around 1% or 2%, because they really have to make it to the next debate in September. And you're right to point out that, you know, there are questions about how many people are actually paying close attention and watching, you know, in the end of July, people are, you know, mostly at the beach and uh, not really focused the way that we are focused on this. So that September debate, I think, is when people are going to really start paying closer attention. And they want to see, at least voters tell us, they want to see the field narrow a little bit, that they appreciate how many people were in the race, but uh, they want to kind of slim down their choices because it's just overwhelming. So I think a lot of these candidates know that, you know, they have to get their poll numbers up. They have to get their fundraising up just to get into that September debate. So if they don't make the debate, it's really difficult to make a continued case for your campaign. Yeah, I think uh, for folks, certainly folks listening to this podcast, watching us and watching these debates, you know, they they realize they're in sort of an alternate universe here <laughs> because the rest of the rest of the country, which ostensibly needs that will get involved and get engaged come, you know, January or so is still out there. And it's an entirely different group of people. And then even and even then, among the folks watching the folks we know on social media who are actively engaged, often the loudest voices look nothing like even the rest of the people who are paying attention. So it's sort of a subgroup of a subgroup that they're trying to build out and and change minds on. People are just, you know, focused on on other things right now and, you know, they'll 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 get to start paying attention, but it is really important to point out that, you know, a lot of these voters that we're talking to are people who are a little more plugged in than others who might show up in these primaries and caucuses. So, there's still a while to go. This race is still very fluid even though we are starting to see as our polling reflects that voters are starting to think about these candidates kind of in groups and 
are starting to make that um, starting that winnowing process themselves a little bit. That is a great point. Um, with that, thank you as always, Caitlin. This has been really fun. Great to be with you, and we have a few more debates to go, so I feel like we'll be talking a lot more. Uh, <laughs> indeed, indeed. All right. Uh, for Caitlin Hubert Burns, I am Anthony Salvanto. This is the podcast for the week of, well, for debate week. Let's just call it that. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you to my uh, intrepid producer, Alan Pang, and his team and everybody here at CBS News. We will see you next time.